This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Um, so, I, so do we have a third co-host? So I don't know what's going on here, but I think we have to start soon if we can't. I can call Matt. Oh, he's, he just, he says, oh, Jesus, I'm on my way right downstairs. <laughs> oh. This is good because I always feel very judged by Matt when I'm late. <laughs> so now you can like yeah, yeah now hold it's like remember this, that time. Sorry. Future. Hey man, no worries. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Matthew Glacius, I'm here with uh, with Ezra Klein as usual, and and Sarah Cliff is. On the in West Seattle? Coast? I'm in Seattle. Yeah. I'm in Seattle where you'll be surprised to know it is gray and rainy. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Seattle. Anyways, we are, I'm here at our great, our, <laughs> my great hometown public radio station, KUOW. So that sounds I'm amazing. Psyched. Thank you, KUOW. It's great. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we are uh, we are here uh, beginning to sort of process what, what Donald Trump means for America. And one thing that has been, I think, a, a very prominent storyline over the past uh, couple of weeks since, since Election Day that reporters have started to pay attention to is the fact that Donald Trump is not just the president-elect. He's also the owner of a large network of businesses. You know, that's funny. I didn't know Trump owned any businesses. <laughs> yeah. And... Well, during the campaign, he sort of frequently mentioned that he's a wealthy businessman. The fact that this would pose some significant conflicts of interest was not a major focus uh, at the time. But we've seen that he has not resolved this conflict in any meaningful way. We've had reports that he is talking to British politicians about wind farms that are obstructing his golf course, um, that we have um, possibly talking to the president of Argentina about permits for a skyscraper. That Seems he's trying like to that there. didn't happen. I slightly disagree. Oh, interesting. Uh, there was, there, there's, there's some competing storylines around this. Um, so at the victory party, uh, for for the Trumps, um, Eric Trump. There's photos of Eric Trump with a couple of Argentine uh, developers who are their partners on this project in Buenos Aires. So at any rate, it's not entirely clear what's happening. Long story short, Trump has a lot of business interests around the world. He has eight companies in Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, and eight incorporated entities. And if you do any kind of business in Saudi Arabia, you're doing business with the Saudi government, in effect. That's just how Saudi Arabia works. He's also president of the United States. In addition to these things that we've had about the direct phone conversations he's had, there's also questions of he has outstanding loans from the Bank of China, from Deutsche Bank. Uh, Deutsche Bank has a regulatory matter pending before the United States government. Uh, the Bank of China is controlled by the Chinese government. So there's this like endless series. And of I don't want to overstate this point because it's not exactly the same thing. But he also just settled a fraud case for $25 million for Trump University. Yeah. I mean, he, he settled the Trump University fraud case. He His charitable foundation, uh, it came out today, admitted in his most recent IRS finding that they misused about $300,000 worth of money. This guy, I just want to note, he got elected like two weeks ago. <laughs> Three yes. weeks ago. This has not been a long time and a lot of this stuff is stacking up. I, I Just as a framing point, I just want to take a deep breath and say what a fucking terrible failure it was on the part of of the media in general, I think, which did a 
overly good job of anything, working its way through what potential conflicts of interest could be posed by the Clinton Foundation, which in general does charitable work and was pretty well constructed uh, to, to be careful around this stuff. Um, wasn't always perfect, but they had thought about this and just not only not enough on the Trump stuff, but I think people did not get a very good understanding of what the issues were. I think there was a lot of focus on ways in which Trump's businesses might have screwed people over and uh, some focus from David Farenthold on ways Trump's foundation might have uh, misused money. But one thing that really I think people did not force uh, Trump to deal with, answer for, was not a big part of the debates or anything else, was how would he deal with this in office? Like how would he deal with the obvious conflicts of interest that are written through his – uh, work. Although in Trump's defense, he was asked about this on a handful of occasions, and he never said that he was going to handle it in a, any kind of satisfactory way. What right, he yes. said he was going to do was turn management of his companies over to his children. Um, he was not shy about the fact that his children were an important part of his political operation. Uh, and this has been one of the continuing uh, I issues here is that his daughter Ivanka sat in with him in a meeting with the prime minister of Japan, and she's supposedly going to be managing his businesses. I would say on, on some level, this is a case of where journalists covering this campaign should have taken what he was saying a little bit more seriously. I think that— And literally. Literally, yes. Both, both <laughs> literally and seriously. Um, and also, it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, what politicians say and do makes a difference, right? I mean, there was a moment when Donald Trump needed to consolidate the Republican Party behind him. And there were some things he had to do to make that happen, right? He clarified what his tax program was and brought it into closer alignment with like what Paul Ryan's tax plan said. And, you know, I think the clear reason for that was that like he wanted to be able to say to House Republicans that like we're all on the same team, that my plan and your plan are a little bit different, but they're like broadly similar and broadly compatible. I never saw an account that suggested that this was something that Republican, you know, members of Congress were uncomfortable with. Um, he had some problems when that tape came out. Um, he had some problems with Judge Curiel. Um, but they never suggested that publicly that they had any problem with this. And since Election Day, when these stories have been coming out, you know, there's kind of a drumbeat of Democrats saying like, hey, we should do something about this. And Congress, you know, could do something about this. I'm not sure that they could totally satisfactorily handle it, but they could. So right now, the president is exempt from the conflict of interest law that applies to other members of the executive branch. Um, Congress could change that. Uh, Congress could. Uh, Elijah Cummings has simply suggested that the House Oversight Committee should hold some hearings in which they bring in Trump's representatives and try to talk this through on the record under oath what's going on. Uh, Jason Chaffetz, who chairs that committee, uh, he was not a particularly fervent supporter of Donald Trump during the campaign. He said he would vote for him because the alternative was Hillary Clinton. Um, at the moment, the alternative is not Hillary Clinton. Jason Chaffetz could just do his job as the chairman of the Government Oversight Committee. Maybe he will. I don't want to prejudge it, but he's had two weeks to comment on this. He, he hasn't done so. Um, there's also a United States Senate. You know, Mitch McConnell could say we need to ask Bush's appointees about this. Uh, he has only— Trump's appointees. Uh, Trump's appointees. Uh, Trump's—the only uh, sen uh, Senate-confirmable person who Trump has put out yet happens to be a candidate for attorney general of the United States, which is actually the person who might be at the locus of some of this stuff. It could be the case that 
senators of both parties questioned Jeff Sessions rigorously about how he plans to have the Justice Department handle this. But I've seen no, like, indication that they're going to do it. And, you know, this is important because the all systems of government have their sort of weaknesses and their fail points. There's no way you can just kind of write down on paper a comprehensive outlook for every situation that might possibly arise. The American system counts on checks and balances, right? I mean, mm-hmm. n- there there are a lot of different ways you can structure government, but the American system bears some considerable costs in terms of interbranch conflict. But the benefit is supposed to be that in precisely this kind of situation, you have an entirely separate group of people with their own names on the ballot, elected separately with their own jobs and their own mandates. And like they are supposed to do oversight on the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I think of what happened here, like the media failure, one of the bizarre things is that with Clinton, like it was, there was one organization, there was the Clinton Foundation, and it got this laser like kind of focus from the press. There, there was a ton of a ton of writing devoted to you know what they were doing, whether it's corruption with Trump. It's this like very dispersed network ranging from like, you know, these companies in Saudi Arabia to things that are selling like like. Trump stakes like it's this giant, giant network of businesses. And in a weird way, even though that's much larger, it it seems to me like it made it there's no clear point like, oh, let's look at that company. And it would have been a quite larger undertaking to kind of look at the whole network of Trump businesses and try and figure out, you know, what this might look like for a president, what the conflict of interest might be. It doesn't excuse the press at all. I think you guys are absolutely right that this was a place where there was a blind eye turned to some important things that we're now dealing with. That's kind of how I think about, you know, why. And I think it also has to do with having congressional Republicans in in power and being in a position where they could be kind of pushing the focus on the Clinton Foundation and not really seeing the same thing happening on the other side because of what the balance of power looked like in Congress. So you could have these investigations going going on, kind of focusing on this like repeated drumbeat of the emails feeding into all of that. Um, one of the points I was interested in the piece Matt wrote for Vox.com last week was about how we're also looking at like a different kind of corruption than we normally worry about in American government, where before, you know, you might worry about people rewarding favors, giving someone a good, you know, giving a certain company a benefit. Now we're talking about something quite different that I don't know. Maybe Matt knows a little bit more about this because he's been writing about it. That feels a bit more foreign about actually the president himself benefiting from from what is happening, that this isn't about rewarding people you like, people you're friends with, rewarding your political allies. This is actually potentially about your own own business interests. And that feels a little bit different than the type of corruption we, we have worried about and thought about in years past. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things 
things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. I think that something that got discussed a lot during the election is the idea of Trump as a candidate who had authoritarian impulses. Sometimes it's got framed, uh, I think usually incorrectly, but but sometimes it's fascism. People have a conceptual framework for the idea that, that Trump maybe is not particularly committed to some of the niceties of the democratic process. Something that I think is a more clear and present danger actually than that, where I, I do think there are more institutional checks is not just the idea of like Trump as authoritarianism, but it's something that often happens in more strongman-led governments, which is sort of a kleptocracy, uh, something uh, a situation where the economy is bent much more to the political system's will. And, and so I just I think this is an important thing in your piece. So I'd like to hear you talk through. Yeah. This too. So so I mean I kind of frame this around a, an article that uh, an economist named John Joseph Wallace wrote. And it's called "The Concept of Systemic Corruption in American History." And he, he sort of mentions that in linguistic and historical terms, when people in the 18th century talked about corruption, they didn't mean that, OK, a rich businessman might bribe a member of parliament and get him to – you know, help you out with a with a regulatory matter. Uh, what they meant was that the king might use his considerable personal wealth and influence to subvert the political system. And that that in turn would drive uh, the, the entire, you know, way of life and, and economy th throughout the universe. And, you know, this is a sort of a, you know, an old timey thing, how 18th century governments were structured. But it's something that you see in more modern kinds of states where you have authoritarian regimes that are not ideological in nature, that don't have any particular set of principles or values that they espouse. But you create a situation in which if you want to do business in a modern economy, you have to comply with certain kinds of regulations. And if the regulators don't care about their work, if they don't have some kind of principled view of what the agencies are for, it turns out that what the agencies are for is to make sure that supporters of the regime get what they need to do business and that opponents of the regime don't have what they need to do business. Uh, now, to be clear, Trump has not been in office at all. So he, he hasn't yet been in a position to do anything that is like that. He's just had a lot of shady meetings, uh, things like that. Um, the federal government just has this enormous amount of power. Donald Trump has an enormous amount of weird business interests, business interests that we can't see. Um, and we can see that he's not particularly trying to hide potential conflicts of interest, right? So you don't really know what's existing sort of beneath the surface of that iceberg. And you run the risk that if he is stocks the government with the sort of regulatory equivalents of a Michael Flynn, right, like people who just 
know Donald Trump and like him and are dependent on him, that you could have, you know, a, a whole governing regime in which, you know, say you're a bank, right, and you don't want to run afoul of the regulators and you decide, well, what you need to do to stay on the good side of the government is give generous loans to Donald Trump or cut off credit to wealthy businessmen who speak out against Donald Trump. And you create a society in which people need to make a really hard choice. And they say, do I want to be like a dissident whose whole life and activities is dedicated to some sort of activism against Donald Trump? Or do I want to just go along and get along? And what it means to go along and get along is make sure you don't donate money to opposition political candidates, right? Make sure that you don't own any media brands that, uh, you know, say hostile things. Just kind of lay low, right? And that's the only way to to kind of get by. And that doesn't it doesn't require you to do anything fascistic or like quote unquote dictatorial. It just requires you to make policy and regulatory decisions in a corrupt sort of way. And it's why it should make – I know that some sort of liberal-minded people take some solace in the idea that Donald Trump seems like he isn't a like real conservative ideologue in the way that you know Mitt Romney or, or Mike Pence or, or Paul Ryan were. Um, but I think we should actually regard that as a fairly dangerous quality in a president. That it's, it's a huge point. I just want to say, listen to what this, this yeah, is an important it's, point. It's good. I think it's good to not be extreme in your ideological viewpoint. Um, but it's important for high-ranking political officials to have real ideas and values that they believe in because that itself is a kind of constraint, right? I would be – my mind would be blown if President Mitt Romney used the regulatory state to try to coerce businesses into doing personal favors for Mitt Romney because I think Mitt Romney believes in free markets and I think that he would want to staff an administration with other true believing free market people who they might make decisions that I think are terrible but they would be like decisions to let people pollute too much because they don't care about pollution. Donald Trump and Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon, uh, they don't seem like a group of people who has a real commitment to any kind of ideas or principles other than themselves and their kind of aggrandizement. They've hybridized a little bit with the sort of establishment Republican Party elected officials. But if they sort of colonize the whole government with just like random people who Donald Trump knows and who he feels are personally loyal to him, that is far more dangerous than some kind of government of true believers, even true believers in really bad causes. Can I ask you a question, yes. Matt, since you've been thinking about this a lot? What is the best case scenario? So let's say, you know, it is that Donald Trump doesn't have, like, super strong ideological beliefs that, you know, he just wants to work to benefit the various businesses he owns. He wants to reward people who are his business allies. What are the levers to stop that? Who controls them? And, like, how do you think about, like, the likely success or failure of those levers getting pulled over the next well, four so years? The, the levers, I think, are actually very strong. I mean, I mean, the American political system, as it is written down and supposed to operate, has a very robust checks against this. And it's that almost all of these things require you to appoint people who are confirmed by the United States Senate, right? And the Senate is controlled by Republicans. So it means that Donald Trump 
should be able to sort of do the equivalent of, of running downhill with his appointments. But it's important for Republicans to insist that Trump appoint qualified Republican Party type people. Uh, so like one concrete example is that the rumor mill has really like two candidates for Treasury Secretary out there. One of them is, is Jeb Henserling, who's a congressman from Texas, who has ideas about financial regulation that I think are kind of terrible, but who, you know, has been in elective office for a long time, who endorsed Ted Cruz in the primary because he's a Texas guy, who um, is the lead author of a bill to dismantle Dodd-Frank, which is what Donald Trump says he wants to do, but who also has led some sort of weirdo fights uh, against the Export-Import Bank. Um, he has a very uncompromising view about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is just to say that, like, I, I don't like Jeb Henserling particularly. I wouldn't mind to see people criticize him. But he would be like a real Treasury Secretary, you know, with like firm stated opinions, a track record in politics, you know, and, and a guy who is not just like a creature of Donald Trump. Then the other guy you hear about is Steven Mnuchin, who is a, a rich guy. He came up uh, at Goldman Sachs. He worked for George Soros. He had his own hedge fund. He doesn't really talk much about politics. He was uh, the top fundraiser for Donald Trump's campaign. Um, there was an interesting uh, Business Week profile of him in which uh, the reporters asked him why he was supporting Donald Trump. And he said, you know, people ask him that all the time. And they're not going to be asking that when I get a job in the administration. It's going to be obvious. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> but so like oh, wow. he didn't he didn't bold. explain like when asked why he was supporting the presidential candidate he was supporting, he did not offer any reasons. Right. That, well, like, I think he, he thought, did. Right, right, right. Um, that's the kind of person. And I know, I know that if Donald Trump hands down a former banker, a Wall Street veteran, a guy who, as far as I know, is completely untainted by scandal. There's no like four alarm fire, oh my God, Steve Mnuchin kind of thing. But I really think it will be important for the country for people to say, wait a minute, we, we can't have a treasury secretary who has no known views about American politics and whose stated reason for supporting, for, you know, raising, I mean, tens of millions of dollars for Donald Trump's campaign is just that well, it would increase my personal political power. Like that's really – it's like it's kind of crazy and it wouldn't be totally unheard of for someone like that to get a cabinet job. I mean usually more like commerce secretary than treasury. Yeah. Commerce um, is where you put that person. Yeah. But I mean <laughs> you got to be – that's where – and it is on Senate Republicans much more so than Senate Democrats because they have the majority. But to say that, to be like you need people who you could imagine – a different Republican president appointing to these jobs. I, I think Jeff Sessions is like on the line in that regard. Um, but some of the people who you hear buzzing out there are like really not. All right. I want to talk about the incentives of Senate Republicans here because I think it's important. And I think this is one of those things where people need to pull their like vision up a little bit. So – as you mentioned, Senate Republicans have the power here. And one reason they have the power here is in 2013, Democrats under, under Reid, they cut the power of the filibuster. So one difference between this in 2008 or even this in – well, yeah, primarily 2008 is it in, in 08, even, uh, Democrats came in depending on the month with 58 to 59 uh, seats in the Senate. They eventually got 60, but it took a while for the Franken recount to, to work itself out. So uh, – 
Democrats came in, but Republicans had the filibuster. And the filibuster at that point applied to Senate confirmable nominees. So one reason folks like Tom Daschle got – somebody like Tom, Tom Daschle got rejected was that Democrats actually did need uh, Republicans to at least let things go forward. Republicans don't need that anymore. Democrats cut the filibuster on non-Supreme Court nominees, which actually uh, is a move I support. But it means that with 52 votes, which is what we expect Republicans to have because we think they're going to win that Louisiana Senate runoff, uh, with 52 votes, they can just pass Trump's nominees into office. Now, one, I think – thing that happens here is that people sort of assume that, well, of course, Republicans won't exercise a real oversight power over Trump because why would they? And and that comes out of a world, I think, both where in general, presidents and their parties are pretty well aligned, but also where we think of parties' incentives as just making their president successful. And usually I think that is a pretty good way to think about things, just as a shorthand. And I don't think it is here and I don't think it is here for Republicans. My, my argument – the argument I'm about to make is not an argument that Republicans need to go against their incentives and stand up for country. It's actually that their incentives align with standing up for country in, in, in two ways. One is that it is very bad for your political party to be associated with a president who collapses in scandal. Uh, the The most – Searing example of this obviously is Nixon, uh, who just led to a total wrecking of the Republican Party after the impeachment. But you can come up with other examples too. Scandal is bad. The, the, the president is your party's figurehead. And to the extent that his brand is bad, your brand is bad. And Republicans are now the empower party. Uh, it tends to be the minority party that not in the White House party that wins in midterm. So if they want to keep their jobs, one thing they should not do is let Donald Trump destroy their brand for no reason. Another thing that they should do is actually want Trump to run the country reasonably well because one thing that also affects whether or not you get reelected is whether the economy is doing well, whether you've launched wars you shouldn't have launched. So, so there too, having a competent treasury secretary who could head off hopefully a financial crisis if they were getting good uh, information from staff on that, that is much better than, than, than having an incompetent one. Um, but the third thing here is that Republicans and, – and this gets to how much you believe that people believe what they say they believe. But you mentioned Mitt Romney and his faith in free markets. During 2012 and subsequent to 2012, something that a lot of Republicans have talked a lot about is crony capitalism. I am old enough to remember <laughs> talking to people in 2015 where Republicans would explain that the big problem with Hillary Clinton and the core thing about the, the rising Republican Party was that Republicans are really against crony capitalism. They did not want to see the state do, uh, you know, creating these kinds of connections between businesses and the government, in part because it makes the government more powerful. Uh, it is something you talk about in your piece, but to the extent that being a successful businessman means supporting the government in power. That means the government in power gets more support from successful businessmen and it becomes more powerful, becomes protected by its powerful clients. And so if you are a Republican who believes in the things you've been saying you believe for a long time, one, having your party become the party of crony capitalism is bad. But two, it's just it's just bad. It's just you so, going against the reason you've said you're in public life. And I think people should worry about that. So I have two reasons to be less optimistic. I'm not being optimistic. I am making the argument. This is what I (laughs) want. I do not think this is going to happen. Oh, okay. Oh. I want to be super clear. I thought this is your... Okay. I am saying this is how Republicans should think about it. Oh, okay. 
Got it. So I, I think two things that will push back against this, this the idea that this is in Republicans' interest. One is you're kind of talking short term versus long term. Like in the long term, you could see a scandal evolving. You could see these problems coming out with business, with the remarks Donald Trump has made. But in the short term, I mean, a lot of politics is pretty personal. Like, I think a lot of Republican senators want to be the ones who have the president's ear and who are invited over to the White House and are part of whatever high level discussions are happening. So I think there's it strikes me as like a long term versus short term decision that legislators will make about, like, do they want to be in favor with the White House, which I think is a pretty strong pull. You know, if you're someone who who runs for office, like your whole job is about getting people to like you, you know, kind of getting into these inner circles and working your way through those to have more clout in Washington. And then on this last point you're making about crony capitalism, I mean, I'm curious how much that that flips. I know you've written, Ezra, a lot about, I'm blanking on the name of the body of research, but the body of research about how so much of our views on politics are really kind of, our views on policy are motivated by politics, that people Mm -hmm. are much more malleable uh, in what they think is the right role of government, depending on what their party says is the right role of government. It feels malleable to me that those views on crony capitalism and how to regulate it, that it might not, what has happened in the past few years, you know, I always think of the healthcare example of the individual mandate, where that just, because of who is supporting it, it flips from a from a policy Republicans like to a policy Democrats yeah. like. Um, so those are two reasons why why I'm skeptical that things will things will play out well. But so here, here's where I want to name a few names, because these are the people who I think reasonably could like play the role that I think both parties really need played, right? Um, so one one person in, in this camp would be Mike Lee, yep. right? He quite vocally opposed Donald Trump, and he represents Utah, which is a state that is very Republican, but where Donald Trump was freakishly unpopular for a Republican. I mean, Trump won Utah in the end, but he is a senator who I think can feel confident that he is more popular with his constituents than Donald Trump is, and who, like, spoke specifically about this, right? And again, Lee doesn't need to like buck the Republican Party on big ideological issues, but to insist that like well-qualified people with a real track record in conservative politics are confirmed, I think is 100% on brand for him and like aligns with his local political interests. And while he may officially take some shit for it from other people in his party, like he can say them for, for the kind of reasons that both of you mentioned that like what Mitch McConnell really wants is for someone else to spike bad Trump nominees, right? And like Mike Lee can tell Mitch McConnell like he can be that guy. Uh, Orrin Hatch, who has less of a profile as a Trump antagonist but is also from Utah, is a bajillion years old and I think probably done running for reelection um, and might be interested in having like a positive reputation in history. Has uh, already said he's already begun actually to create some Republican Party friction by saying that he's not just going to go with Paul Ryan's tax reform and wants right. to do something bipartisan. So he does seem to want to play a, exactly. a sort of bridge building role um, John McCain, um, also a million years old, uh, just reelected, I, I really think not going to run again, um, did not, you know, why do you keep thinking these guys aren't going to run again? Have you seen the U.S. Senate? Uh, they're like, they're barely alive. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but, but McCain also very viciously and senselessly personally attacked by Donald Trump during the campaign. Um, I think 
you know, said some some mean things about McK- uh, about Trump, already did speak out on the torture question specifically since the election, uh, is definitely a guy who cares a lot about his personal legacy, his reputation as kind of a, a maverick type figure, you know, someone who I think should should really think about this. Then from the other wing of the party, Susan Collins who has always been, like, if you were going to name maybe some Republican will break with their party, like, it would be Susan Collins. Um, Hillary Clinton won the state of Maine. Um, You know, she has no particular reason to go along with Donald Trump wanting to appoint wildly unqualified people to different parties. Uh, She is insanely popular in Maine. And the only conceivable threat, it seems to me, to her reelection would be for her to somehow become complicit in like massive corruption on the part of somebody else. She should just like not do that, safeguard her reputation and her political party. Uh, You know, that starts to add up to enough people, particularly because you get anti-bandwagons, right? If three or four Republican senators start saying, Hey, man, you know, let's make America great again, but let's make America great again by having qualified nominees, then like that's enough. And and this is why I, I wrote a piece that is very bleak about this. It's called We Have 100 Days to Stop something terrible from happening. Um, but I mean, a hundred days to stop Donald Trump from systematically yeah, yeah, corrupting yeah. American um, institutions. So, you should search his piece on Vox.com. So, but the, the reason I wrote it that way is that I do think there's considerable urgency here because I, I think it's in some ways very easy to stop a huge problem here. It's just if in the first handful of nominees, one or two of them get shot down for being like too weird and unqualified and and lacking independence, Trump, you know, he will – he will bob and weave, right? Like he will tack in a different direction. I don't think like some whole brand new Trump will emerge. But you, we've seen time again. He is capable of huddling with his inner circle and saying, OK, like we got a zig now. We've got a zag now, right? If Senate Republicans say we're not going to confirm like randos who we don't know anything about and who have no prior government service, he'll stop throwing up those kind of appointees and like we will be OK. And one thing I think is going to be interesting here. So the, the body of research Sarah was referring to is the motivated reasoning research. I am not sure how much it actually applies to Trump in the way it would apply to, say, a President Paul Ryan, in part because Trump comes in with a very strange and difficult relationship with his own party. I think this is a dynamic that we do not know how it is going to unfold, so I do not want to speak with too much confidence about it. But when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, he was beloved by Senate Democrats. When um, George W. Bush was elected in 2000, he was beloved by Senate Republicans. These, these guys had a lot of relationships in their party. Of the 52 members of the Republican senators, 40, 11 of them did not endorse Donald Trump at all. Of the 41 who did endorse Donald Trump, one of them called him a delusional narcissist. Another said that he should not be trusted with nuclear weapons. Another said a speck of dirt is more likely to be – is more qualified to be president. That was Rand Paul who I would add to your list, Matt, who is a pretty principled sort of form of a libertarian and worries a lot uh, in, in general about crony capitalism problems. Another one uh, said that Donald Trump is a pathological liar and, and in addition, Donald Trump said his father might have killed JFK. So <laughs> – Oh no! I think right, that, that guy. I think he called like him an Ted amoral. Cruz, yeah. yeah, an amoral. Uh, he said amoral. That's the same guy. I, he I don't was remember also Ted Cruz's phone calls. I know. At the end, like, but that's what I mean. That I I don't really feel like I know how this is going to play okay. out. It was harder for Barack Obama 
to hold 60 members of the Democratic Senate or 59, depending on, on the moment, than it was for him to get them by the end of the campaign to endorse him. Like every Democrat endorsed Barack Obama, no problem. There are a lot of members of the Republican Party right now who – official members of the Republican Party who – like genuinely hate and fear Donald Trump, but felt that one, he was better than Hillary Clinton. He was better for them than Hillary Clinton, right? A Donald Trump win is a win in which they probably keep the Senate. That proved to be true for them. Um, but they have a lot of concern about him. And to, to Matt's point, I think this is a place where that concern can hopefully be expressed. Uh, it, it would be very hard. They're not going to express that concern by voting against a Paul Ryan budget, right? They, they believe in that. But what they don't really believe in, and what I again, like, I don't think they should believe in for their own for for their own political good, is letting Trump run a corrupt and incompetent administration. And and my hope is that they don't. My hope is that they uh, that, that they see this one clearly. I, I agree with what you had said, Sarah, about there being short term and long term here. But I'm I think that I don't think this is so long term. I think that the 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 tendency of this kind of stuff like we are as as I joked earlier like two or three weeks into this and the number of corruption stories breaking in a given day is tremendous and that's before they've started doing anything so I think this can turn particularly Republican who's coming in with his favorability numbers already underwater which we've never seen before um, I think this can turn pretty fast and Republicans would be wise to actually force Trump to run a better administration that protects him and them a little bit more that said, I don't think they're necessarily that wise. I, I don't either. I'm just yeah. – <laughs> I, I, I want to suggest this because I don't think people should take it for granted. No, I agree. That, that people are yeah. going to do – I at least don't want – this is something you often criticize me for, Matt, but and, and I think you're often right. I do not want it to just be read into baseline that of course no one will do this because there are Republicans and it would be bad for them and it would be acting against interest. I don't think that is true. No, I and I, I at least hope that they are thinking seriously about this. I mean, I know that people on the Hill are busy and often actually don't have that much time to be um, deliberative about what it is they are doing. And they tend to run their offices on a little bit of an autopilot. And I, I and, you know, people did not think Trump was going to win. Right. People really, really did not think that he was going to win. So they did not spend much time preparing themselves mentally for this kind of situation. And there's a little bit of a sort of shock uh, dynamic in Washington. Um, and I do hope that, you know, Republican senators especially are taking some time to like really think this out over a period of several different years and like what is the cost of speaking up in the short term really? Like really how bad is it going to be versus how much good could be done by, you know, two or three people talking about one or two nominees and then just setting things on a different course. And also when you're considering, you know, Trump's ability to patch things up again with some of these people who've criticized him, it, like it cuts both ways, you know. So like on the one hand, Marco Rubio at one point said Donald Trump was a con artist who couldn't be trusted with nuclear weapons and then he wound up endorsing him for president. Um, on the other hand, you know, Donald Trump was talking about how Marco Rubio was, uh, I forget what, like a choker and, you know, a fraud, blah, 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 blah. But like when they needed to work together again, they worked together again, right? If you can – if you think Donald Trump is tapping bad people and you can stop him from doing that, he will of course be mad. But if he then replaces them with different, better people – 
like you will be able to patch things up and and move along, right? I mean, this is a guy who like does definitely hold grudges and nonetheless is like not above putting these things behind him for the sake of winning elections. So one of the things Donald Trump did uh, over the last week was he held a meeting. Uh, actually, by the time this comes out, we'll have held two meetings with the press. And Donald Trump, if, you, if folks remember, there was a long controversy during the presidential election where Hillary Clinton did not hold a press conference for a while. Donald Trump, who actually, as far as I can tell, really enjoys press conferences, has not held one or has not been allowed to hold one by his staff for a very long time. But by the end of the campaign, Trump's relationship with the press corps is pretty bad. So on Monday, That's Donald fact. Trump held a pretty big meeting with uh, various members of the press, including practically network executives from the major networks, anchors from the major networks. It, it seems to have been focused towards the television press because that is the press uh, Donald Trump cares about. It's interesting just contrasting this a little bit with Obama, who tended, I think, to give more uh, consideration to written press because Barack Obama enjoys reading things more than does not like cable news that much. Anyway, so Donald Trump holds this meeting. And after the meeting, Kellyanne Conway comes out and she says, this was a great meeting. It was cordial. It was friendly. There was a great exchange of ideas. And then everybody else comes out of this meeting. And Donald Trump apparently just sat there and berated the press for 45 minutes, called Jeff Zucker a liar by name, said Katie Turr from NBC, who's done great reporting, you know, complained about her. And just generally didn't just make people in that meeting mad, but sort of scared them. There was a good piece by David Remnick at The New Yorker where he talked to a bunch of folks at that meeting. And, and they were just scared. Like they just said, this guy does not understand the First Amendment. He does not understand what our role is. And he is a petulant, bullying, immature uh, character. At the same time, since getting elected, Donald Trump has not only stopped tweeting, but a lot of his tweeting has been tweeting mean things at the New York Times. He, he's continuously very mad at the New York Times, keeps calling them the failing New York Times. And again, Donald Trump is president-elect now. He doesn't need to be going to war with the New York Times. And they've actually not been even reporting anything that damaging about him, but he's just mad at them and he keeps tweeting it out. So the, the day after this bigger meeting with networks and others, he was supposed to have a meeting with the New York Times. That meeting... He then canceled because he said the New York Times changed the rules, which he said in his tweet was not very nice. Um, then it appears to have come out, although, you you know, this is anonymous sources, but it's sources in the Trump in Trump land. People are saying that Reince Priebus didn't think he should have this meeting with The New York Times. So tricked Donald Trump by saying The New York Times had tried to change the ground rules, which, of course, The New York Times denied ever changing the ground rules because they did not try to change the rules. Anyway, so that meeting got put back on, on schedule and is, is actually happening more or less as we record this podcast. But the, the the point here is that Donald Trump is setting up for a very a very oppositional relationship with the press. And and he is somebody who has benefited very much from understanding media dynamics and understanding how to get coverage. But he has become angrier and angrier and angrier at the media. He went from really liking a lot of members of the media and seeming just continuously very chuffed that he got so much coverage on cable news to being very angry at them, but is still addicted to cable news. And so he just sits there getting madder and madder and madder as he keeps particularly, it seems, CNN on in, in whatever room he happens to be in. So this is just a, a bad start to things, and it's particularly a bad start if you are worried about the ways in which Trump might try to make his uh, administration inaccessible, might try to constrict the flow of, of information, or might try to punish press that, that he thinks is is negative towards him, which he's already trying to do without the powers of the presidency, simply using the power of his celebrity. But 
you know, soon he will actually have the powers of the presidency and there'll be more he could do to retaliate against the, again, quote unquote, failing New York Times. Yeah. Although I also think there's something that's a little just sort of more banally strategic about this. Like, I just don't think the New York Times' coverage of Donald Trump during the campaign was particularly negative. I don't think their coverage of him during the transition has been particularly negative. I thought in particular, I mean, the Times staffers are incredibly defensive about this when you ask them about it, and they should really fucking chill out a little bit. But like, they did an article saying that there were important conflict of interest questions raised by the fact that Doug Band once asked the State Department if he and Bill Clinton could get official diplomatic passports so that they could go to North Korea to try to rescue American hostages, then the State Department told him no. Like that was a front page story in the New York Times. They didn't see fit to do any stories on Donald Trump's foundation and it's like illegal campaign contributions, things like that. At any rate. Did they really do none on the foundation? I know they didn't do as many because the Washington Post got the story and I think they underplayed it in part for that reason. But did they really do none? Yeah, because it was a fair and hold story. Um, They did a story. They did a story about Hillary Clinton's, a long story about Hillary Clinton's deep ties to Goldman Sachs, like a pretty good story, right? But it didn't mention that the finance chair of Donald Trump's campaign and his main fundraiser was a Goldman Sachs guy. Like, I think it was it was really bad, like really bad Hillary Clinton reporting. Um, and Trump, by positioning himself as so antagonistic to The New York Times, is like causing other people to like baseline The New York Times as like, the on the opposite end of the spectrum as Breitbart or Fox News or something like that, which is a way of marginalizing like actually critical, I don't want to say actually critical, but more critical journalism, right? Um, that, that this is, uh, there's an element of sort of gamesmanship going on here, right? Where you have a lot of people, every time Trump like tweets like the failing New York Times is so unfair to me, I see like dozens of people being like, I just increased my subscription or, you know, like the New York Times is the greatest thing ever. And I think that's part of the the game here, right? I mean, if if the New York Times is like, the opposition to Donald Trump, but the New York Times is also committed to the New York Times's view of journalism, which is like very staid, very restrained, even handed to a fault kind of thing. Like that is really, really, really very advantageous to him. You don't see Donald Trump going on tweet storms against Chris Hayes or Mother Jones. Um, I think he has wised up and like no longer complains about David Farenthold, right? Because like he knows not to elevate like his genuinely fearsome critics out there and is instead setting up this kind of like patsy debate where he's just now like wandered down to to the the New York Times to do questions with their reporters where he's just lying constantly in his answer to every question. And I just I guarantee you that the New York Times is like headline write up of this will not be Donald Trump just showed up and lied to us a ton. Right. But like that's like that's what he's doing. It would not be a timesy headline. I don't say that that's not how they're going to cover it because they're in the tank for him. It's like the New York Times has a way. Right. And like its way is its way. But if you can define in the public eye that kind of like very low key, like super traditional journalism as like 
this is the people who are out to get me. Like, that's really good for Donald Trump. The fight on Twitter is very much with the Times, like you said. And it's really been it, it almost feels like it's picked up a little bit since Trump got elected. Yeah. That like his like the if you look at like share of tweets devoted to criticizing the New York Times, it seems like it has become a large percent of um what he tweets about. But then you have this like parallel thing happening with the White House press pool that it seems to test how much coverage Trump how much of the coverage that happens of the presidency rests on tradition and how much that will change under Trump. So this might be a little bit insidery, but I think it's worth explaining that the way news organizations do coverage of the presidency in Washington is that they have a pool schedule where if someone from a news organization follows the president around for the day, you obviously can't have this massive gaggle of um, reporters going with the president everywhere he goes. So they pick one person. They file pool reports. The kind of rules of it are you can't keep anything to yourself. Anything that you might publish in your news organization, you have to share with anyone else who's a member of um, the White House Correspondents Association. Um, It has, from what I understand, typically been traditional for the president-elect to set up a traveling press pool to alert the press of where he is going, to kind of start doing those things before he transitions into the official role. Trump has not been the most eager participant in this. He, especially in the first few days after the election, just was going where he liked, not alerting people, leading to some pushback from the White House Press Association saying, you know, we we need to be able to assign this pool. The person who was on pool duty wasn't notified of where he was going. And I think there's a fair debate about the value of the pool um, and what movements we need someone on. Uh, but it, I think it's indicative of this, you know, fight that, that's a little more mundane. It's not as like on Donald Trump, Trump's Twitter, like he hasn't been tweeting about how he doesn't want a pool reporter following him around. But it's it's going to matter, you know, in terms of what we know about what the president is doing. It ties to our last segment about, you know, kind of not fully understanding the reach of Donald Trump's um business um, business associations. And granted, the pool isn't there for everything. They're not there for, you know, private Oval Office meetings, but they're there when the president is going somewhere. And that's an important function that this has served. I, I think it's a function that, I mean, it's not obviously not written into law anywhere that this has to happen, but it's a function the other, you know, the last presidents we've have had have accepted. And I, I think it still seems uncertain to me whether a President Donald Trump is going to accept having the idea of a White House press pool and what that relationship ends up looking like. I think that is very much right. And I also think there's just like one of the interesting just underlying questions here is whether or not Trump's staff will just be honest with the press. Uh, I think that Kellyanne Conway specifically just does more lying than – and Trump himself does just more straight, bald-faced lying, saying like the sky is orange sort of thing than we've really seen before. I mean, it's not uncommon for politicians and, and political staffers to be evasive. It's not uncommon for them to be careful. It's not uncommon for them to shade the truth in ways that are favorable to them or to emphasize um, facts that give a uh, sort of misleading impression of a story because it leaves out context. But things like you walk out of a, a, a meeting where Trump just like went to war with the press and, and you say, oh, it was this great, you know, <laughs> lovely, polite, fun meeting. That that's just That's a little bit of a different kind of thing. I will say that in terms of – I do think the Trump New York Times stuff is is fascinating. And, and Matt, I think I think your analysis of it is interesting. I will say I think the New York Times did more good work on Trump than you're giving them credit for. Like they were the ones who got his tax um, details. That was actually a, a pretty – I think a pretty big deal. 
But even so, I do think it's interesting that he is basically trying to make New York Times and CNN his foils, right? Those are the two media organizations. I think in part because they're the two that he really seems to absorb. One thing that seems to be true about Trump is that he watches a lot of CNN and he reads a lot of the New York Times. I mean, he's a guy who lives in Manhattan. He actually said in this meeting with the New York Times, and note that he's not done a meeting like this so far, at least with the Washington Post or with the Wall Street. He did an interview with the Wall Street Journal, but not a big kind of sit down with a bunch of people on the record. And so I think part of what's going on here is just that these are the ones who who bug him and and he lashes back in the way that he does. I think a fascinating sub theme of the last week, though, and you saw it in in the fight over Hamilton, which I, I do not want to go into in, in great detail, but is a question of is Trump crazy or is Trump crazy like a fox kind of thing, right? Is Trump executing a sort of big plan when he keeps tweeting about the failing New York Times? Or is he just like personally super pissed off? And similarly with Hamilton, like was Trump trying to distract people from the fact that he had just settled a $25 million fraud case and there's all these new stories about his corruption? Or does he, you know, just have that tendency and is tweeting about SNL is kind of the same way. I do not know how to distinguish those things. And it's possible it doesn't matter. It's possible that Trump just has sort of crazy instincts that also end up working for him sometimes and sometimes not, but in an unusual way. But I, I do think that stuff is is meaningful. Uh, but I will say that my biggest concern with him, and, and this goes a little bit to, to your point, Sarah, is just there's a lot of stuff that Trump team and Trump himself do that's pretty out of the ordinary. But one of the things is just he is accessible, but not honest. And it's a sort of a weird thing in in politicians. Uh, you often get politicians who are not accessible. But, you know, if you deal with them reasonably honest, Trump actually does personally talk to the press quite a bit. He likes to do interviews. He likes to engage. And he, you know, even throughout the campaign was giving interviews to the, the New York Times till fairly late, even after they had, you know, really uh, hammered him on stuff like the taxes. But he is not honest in those interviews. And it's just not clear to me that his White House will prize having any kind of like factually accurate relationship with the press corps. And, and I think it's a situation where the media – I think journalists need to consider doing something that's unusual, right? I mean, in a normal circumstance, right, if the president of the United States is like, I want to go on your TV show, is like, of course you want the president of the United States on your TV show. You have to ask yourself at a certain point, though, and, and the same goes, you know, for, for, you know, advisors, senior members of the administration. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, if somebody just wants to lie, Right. What is the journalistic value exactly of putting that person on television? It's possible to structure it such that there is value, but you have to really think about what you're doing. You know what I mean? And just sort of doing endless rounds of journalists talk to Kellyanne Conway, journalists tweet what Kellyanne Conway told them, then journalists like at the end of those tweets are like, None of that stuff was true, lol, JK, lol, lol, lol. It's like, is that helping? Like, are people being informed by that kind of process? I don't think you ever want to say, like, well, if somebody, like, one time said something that's not true, like, you've got to, like, strike them off your roster forever. But, like, when we talk to, you know, younger reporters on our staff, right? When you talk about like, look, you got to make the call. You have to like get comment from somebody's spokesman about your story, blah, blah, blah. The, the whole rigmarole, right? The underlying idea there is that you are going to obtain useful information, 
right? That if you don't make the call, you might be missing out on something important. If there's someone who is just like, you know that what they're going to say to you is not going to be accurate, then like, well, why make that call, right? Like, what is that for? Um, And I think we really, you know, have this problem, particularly with um, Trump's spokespeople, right? I mean, you used to say, okay, well, you know, you can count on the spokesman to give an honest answer, or if he can't give an honest answer, to do a straightforward dodge. Because if they just come out here into the briefing room and, like, lie their asses off, we're going to stop quoting them. Right. But Kellyanne Conway has shown that she will keep getting quoted no matter how ridiculous the stuff she says is. And I think that's like a real problem. Right. If there are no consequences in terms of your access to the media megaphone, um, then, you know, there's like a total breakdown of the system. All right. All right. Do some white paper. Do some white, bring the white papers back. Bring yeah, we're getting back. back to making it. white right. papers great again. Making making the podcast <laughs> great again. So there was this paper that came out in 2015 that had this really interesting argument. It argued that the show 16 and Pregnant was responsible for one third of the decline in teen teen births. And we've been in this era where the teen birth rate is just dropping really quickly. We've been trying to understand why it's happening. And these two economists, uh, Melissa Kearney and Phil Levine, they argued that the show 16 and Pregnant by showing this really realistic um, portrayal of how much it sucks to be a teen mom, actually led to really significant declines in teen childbearing. And the way they did this is they looked at the areas of the country that watched MTV a lot, and they looked at where teen births were falling a lot. And they were able to show that the areas where you saw more MTV watching were also having the fastest decline in teen births. So that was a paper that came out in 2015 The white paper we're talking about today is one that argues that this is garbage, that basically says, no, 16 and pregnant did not lead to this decline in teen pregnancy. Um, It comes from an economist at the City University of New York named David Yeager, who what he did, which was really interesting, was he basically extended back the data. He said, well, you know, this study, the Melissa and Kearney study, it start or the Melissa Kearney Philavine study starts a little bit before um, 16 and Pregnant came on the air. Let's go back even further. And what he finds is going back, you see the trend happening before 16 and Pregnant hits the air. So y- you see, he argues that something else was happening. Something is different about these areas that watch a lot of MTV and that essentially that you've had a spurious correlation. Um, I've talked to the researchers on both sides of this. Um, I- I've talked to Phil Levine, one of the authors of the original study. He argues that, you know, if you try out other data specifications, if you do a different time frame, that the one that the Jaeger paper points out is kind of anomalous, that if you do seven out of eight different time specifications, that you still get the result of their original paper. Um, but it struck me as interesting, one, because it made me think a lot about how economic research is constructed, that you are able to find quite different results on the effects of this television show, just depending on how you set the parameters of um, of what time period you're studying. And the second is, you know, how how this should shape about how, how we think about um, preventing teen pregnancy. Like, should we think of showing this real realistic TV show in sex ed class, for example, is that a good approach based on the research that we have? I I think up until this other working paper came out, you would have said, yeah, that seems like a reasonable show to um, put on in a teen sex ed class. I I think now 
this study throws throws some cold water uh, on the idea that a television show could have such a big effect on public health outcomes. This is one of those kind of study back and forth where, on the one hand, I'm not properly qualified to fully adjudicate it. Uh, on the other hand, this was a result that came out of a very clever study design, right? It was a very well-done study, but was also very hard to believe, at least to me, in the size of the effect that, that, that it was portraying. And I think that's why everybody, we all covered it, right? It was a very, very large effect for just the idea that people watching 16 and, and, and pregnant Again, I do not want to like firmly come down on one side or the other, but as a kind of like good Bayesian, um, how do you say that? Bayesian? Bayesian. Bayesian. Bayesian, As a good Bayesian. I I kind of started this with like some skepticism and the, the, the questioning of it just gives me a little bit more. Uh, I, I am, I am, I I do not know enough to, to distinguish the different time sequences, but I'm open to this revision. Well, you know, I, I think that the, the, the point about, um, Bayes and uh, is is actually <laughs> I think it's a good one with this right that one thing that you um, is sort of a suppressed topic in a lot of these econometric studies right is like how plausible do we find this result to be right as, as a researcher if you do some number crunching and it tells you that the sun will probably rise tomorrow. Then the number crunching, like, yeah, that's that's probably right. Whereas if you if you run through the data and it's like, oh man, there's there's gonna be no sun tomorrow, you should be very skeptical of, of that kind of result, right? That's the that's the Bayesian updating, right? It it depends on the strength of, of your prior commitments. But it's hard to discuss that explicitly in these kind of studies. And it's particularly because it's a double-edged sword where like this crazy sounding idea that like, oh, some TV show massively reduced teen pregnancy is exactly what makes it like an interesting paper that people write up and it gets written about. But your willingness to believe that a kind of statistical parsing really does show that should depend on like how plausible it sounded in the opposite kind of way, right? So it's like boring sounding statistical findings should be much more credible than interesting sounding ones, but interesting sounding ones are much more interesting. And so we're much more likely to talk about them. And you can create a sort of confusing situation in there. And and you see this particularly in the very sort of ideologically weighted aspects of of economics where, you know, if you think that like there's overwhelming theoretical reason to believe that the minimum wage causes unemployment, then it's very easy to find statistical tests that will show that. And if you don't believe that, then those statistics look much less convincing. Um, And with the 16 and pregnant thing, I do feel like we have a sort of like an undefined prior. Like I really, Ezra seemed like very, very skeptical of this. It did not strike me as that implausible. I was kind of like, yeah, TV shows spark fads. Like there's lots of babies named Daenerys now because there was a television (laughs) show. Um, So I don't know, right? But like it would be good actually I think to see a little bit less like in the weeds about the statistical methodology and a little bit more like – what do we know about this whole universe of questions? Like do TV shows have big effects on behavior? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I believe Kearney and Levine, they've done another study on Sesame Street. So they've actually gotten into studying this after this first study. 
I'm kind of, I think I'm somewhere between you guys where it seems plausible to me that there is an effect, but I always found the idea that a television show would be responsible for one third of the decline in teen pregnancy to be a, a quite larger effect than I would have expected from a television show, which has always kind of like put me on the on the fence about the findings. Um, I had a long discussion with Phil Levine, one of the authors of the original paper, about this. And, you know, we were talking, I was, you know, asking him, well, what's the right time frame to study this? Like, a lot seems to hinge. Like, is there, you know, when you get a PhD in economics, like, do you learn, like, the right time frame to set up a study like this? And there really isn't. Um, you know, the reason they chose their initial time frame had to do with some of the data availability that they had county, or maybe, I forgot the exact geographic area, but they had the right data to go back to, I think it was 2005. So, you know, that seemed like a plausible amount of time. I think it took them like a few years before the show started. And they said, you know what, like, that's a good data set. But, you know, going back two years, like the Jaeger paper does, you get a totally different result. There's no clear differentiation to say like, oh, well, that's the right, the right data set to use to like make a conclusion about what happened, which um, I don't know, make, I guess gives me like a little more skepticism reading any research and makes me think it's all meaningless. I'm Not eat. totally meaningless, I, but like it's, I don't know, it's a little, it's a little stressful thinking through. Well, nothing matters. Uh, exactly. What's the deal I with mean, Sesame Street? Though? I'm going to, well, before we go to Sesame Street, I actually want to use this to talk about a, another paper that I was thinking about and then arguing with someone on Twitter about today, which is, we were- <laughs> Good her, use of time, right, always. Herman Lopez <laughs> wrote about it on Vox. <laughs> and it's a fascinating paper. It shows it in a lot of the counties that really flipped from- Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016 in Ohio and Wisconsin. And I'm doing this from memory a little bit. So if I get a detail wrong, please forgive me. But in a lot of the counties that flipped uh, from 2012 to 2016 towards Trump in Ohio and Wisconsin, those are counties that have been hit really particularly hard by the heroin epidemic. Um, which is an interesting finding. So I, I put this up on Twitter and <laughs> had this like screenshot of it where it talks about there being this correlation between these counties and, and being hit by the heroin epidemic. And friend, a, a friend of mine, a friend of the podcast uh, and a great political scientist, Brendan Nihon, you know, <laughs> retweeted was like correlation causation alert. And I think people have gotten like anytime anybody puts up a correlation based study anywhere oh now, like somebody jumps up and is a correlation causation alert. And yes, correlation was literally in the excerpt. But but this goes to this point about like, how do you think about these studies, which is that is something that I OK. So there is this interesting kind of mystery. Why did these counties move from Obama to Trump, given these are two very different politicians. And and you can try to figure out different ways to, to solve this mystery. But one way I hadn't thought of was that, well, okay, there is this, in, in the places where it is intense, this devastating opioid epidemic, right? That is really, if you live in an area where the opioid epidemic has really, has really hit, it has completely changed what that area is like. I mean, Sarah, you've done more reporting on this, but but it's genuinely devastating. It's now the the stat I keep coming back to is the opioid epidemic is now killing more people in America than HIV AIDS did at the height of the plague. And while yes, the study does not prove um, that that this is what did it, I th like when I, I think about my person that like what do I think would have happened to. Uh, community that was hit really hard by the opioid epidemic. And, and yeah, I think that they might have become a whole lot more interested in uh, politicians who 
promise larger solutions and somewhat more disenchanted with establishment politicians from the party was not able to do anything about this, which is to say that uh, the, the, the both most true and least uh, fun conclusion of all this stuff, which is more study is needed. But I, I do think that it, it is sometimes a good way to just like try to think about papers, right? Obviously, things can be true that you don't think are true and things that you do think are true can can be false. But I do think one problem in the press sometimes is that we're too credulous of things that would just be interesting if they were true. And then and then simultaneously, I do think we've gotten to a point sometimes in public discourse where it's like such the smart thing to say correlation is not causation that we we have lost the ability to say correlation is interesting, suggestive evidence that maybe we could talk about. I mean, sometimes, you know, so like one reason correlation doesn't prove causation is that you can have cases of like joint causation, um, which if you're not doing uh, like physics, though, like if you're talking about politics, that itself can be interesting, right? It's entirely possible that some underlying malady is causing people in a certain number of counties to like both shoot up heroin and vote for Donald Trump, which itself would be an interesting. Or we should say in this case, take oxy. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, But yeah, you know what I mean? To... Even if it's hard to like write yeah. a headline, right? But if there's like a bundle of impacts involving disemployment of prime age working class men, disability, psychological experience of pain, voting for extreme political candidates, right? Like that, you will struggle to find, okay, this is the thing that caused the other thing, right? But like a whole social trend that has some very salient um, sort of high points, right? Because you wonder in any community, right, if you have a lot of deaths due to opioid overdoses, you also have a lot of people who are presumably not dying of opioid overdoses, but who are being impacted by the same like social trends that that pushed people there, right? And it's that sort of underlying push toward either more recreational drug use or more reliance on uh, pharmaceutical painkillers, like, is fascinating, right? And very plausibly linked to politics, I think, in like a a strong way that, you know, we should not be like, whoa, that's a crazy, you know, uh, uh, correlation searching thing. And, And we've seen it, right, in the trade literature, there's much greater use of disability insurance uh, in counties that have been heavily exposed to China trade. We we know like that's one correlation. We know that there's much higher self-reported pain among men who are out of the labor force. So there's like there's something going on there. Speaking of something going on, one thing that could be going on is you could be telling your friends to listen to The Weeds. And not only The Weeds, but if you did not check out uh, our sneak preview of the podcast Sarah is working on, it is on this feed. I really, really think that uh, listeners of this show will love it. Um, I am uh, someone who listens to the show, and I really thought Sarah's podcast was great. So check that out. Thank you to the literally hundreds of you who sent us feedback, ideas for names. It is so appreciated. Um, so thank you again for following our instructions. Um, we are reading all of the emails, so we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro, uh, to Matt and to Sarah, to all of you for tuning in. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Oh, and before I go, I'm going to plug my uh, Ezra Klein show podcast this week, which is an interview with Heather McGee of Demos, which is a pretty fascinating conversation on race, class, empathy, and the election. I think folks here will like it. And we'll see you next week.